Good evening. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., where tonight our face-off is called Unresolved Trump's First 100 Days. And because so much has happened since Inauguration Day, we are unlocking our usual format to let us debate not just one, but four different resolutions, each a different arguable proposition about the impact of Trump's presidency so far. Also, we are going to bring five debaters to the stage who will not be arguing in prearranged teams, but each one will be flying solo, arguing yes or no on each resolution, depending on what that resolution is. They will be trying to convince you, our live audience here in New York, of the merits of their individual positions, and you also will be voting on these resolutions, and we will track how your positions swing over the course of the evening and which of these debaters proves best at convincing you that he or she is most right about Donald J. Trump. A hundred days, four resolutions, five debaters. Let's meet them and bring them on. Hello, Jennifer Rubin. Nice to be here. You are an opinion writer and author of the Right Turn blog for the Washington Post. You've debated with us before last fall. It's great to have you back. Thank nice you. to be here. And Rick La- Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review, commentator for the Fox News Channel. Welcome back to you as well. Thanks so much, John. Also a past debater and a great debate we had last fall on immigration. Thanks. Thank you. Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State for Kansas and immigration advisor to the Trump campaign. That makes you the only member of our panel uh, who has advised the Trump campaign So we're interested in what you have to say. I I also find it interesting that of the many, many sitting elected officials that we've invited to debate on our stage, you're the only one who's ever said yes. What's that about? (laughs) Uh, Thank you. You know, I I think having, you know, to win a statewide office, you usually have to do a few debates. And I think most politicians really don't like it. Uh, yeah, and we've maybe, noticed. <laughs> I, and I'm just uh, odd that way. I actually really enjoy it. All right. Thanks very much. And now, Ian Bremmer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a global risk research and consulting firm. Welcome, Ian Bremmer. Good to see you. And here's the thing about you, Ian. You are a three-time past debater for us. I think this is debate number four for you with us. And you were actually the inspiration for tonight's show, some writing you did back earlier in the winter on the topic of America First. You actually said, I could argue both sides of this. It's that nuanced. And we thought, okay, let's get nuanced about it. So thank you, Ian Bremmer. And Jamel Bowie, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. You are the chief political correspondent for Slate and a political analyst for CBS News. You are our only first-time debater tonight. How yes, do you feel about that? Huh? I, I hope I'm just not hazed or anything. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be really unpleasant. No, it's going to be fine. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome one more time our team of debaters. So what we're going to do, we're going to move on to the first motion. That first motion, again, is America first is a sound policy direction. Each debater will have one minute to make an opening statement. Which debater that is will be chosen at random from these debater picture cards that I I have in my pocket. And I'm going to pull one out at random, and that person will go first, and after that we'll move to the person's left. And by the way, um, Jennifer Rubin's left, I decree, is over there. So... 
It'll go around this way. So let's see who goes first. Ian Bremmer will go first. So I'm going to put, the, put it to Ian Bremmer this way, and you're going to signal by turning that uh, card, a yes or no card, to indicate to the audience which side you're on. Ian Bremmer, on the motion, America first is a sound policy direction. How do you declare? I declare yes. You have one minute. Sure. Uh, look, I, I think the point is that America first uh, should be leading by example. That's why I believe it's sound. We know that Americans are not interested in being the world's policemen. Two and a half million Americans and their families having participated in failed and expensive wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We know a solid majority of Americans aren't as interested um, in supporting free trade. Uh, like TPP or NAFTA, because they feel like they did not benefit from it. Even though prices are lower, they don't see the opportunities. The American dream for many of them is dead. The point is not that America first as a concept or a policy doesn't work. The point is that Trump himself is incapable and unwilling to actually lead by example. So the fact that you have the wrong vessel, the fact that he personally can't execute, does not mean that America first as a concept is something we should be throwing away. Thank you, Ian Bremmer, and just in the nick of time as well. You, you didn't hear it because uh, Ian came in a little bit short, but there's a little tone that will sound if a debater hits the one-minute mark, at which point they are strongly encouraged by me to stop talking within a few sentences. Okay, we move on now to Chris Kobach, Kansas Secretary of State. On the motion, America first is a sound policy direction. How do you declare? The yes position. Yes position. Okay. Um, it's, I think it's an interesting commentary on our times that this is even considered a debatable topic. I mean, it's axiomatic that the leaders of any nation should prefer the, to put the interests of their, their countrymen or their, their, their country uh, over the interests of other countries. Um, but I think it's a sound policy direction in practice, too, because if you look at how it applies in specific questions. So, for example, take refugee policy. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, we were granting about 93 percent of refugee applications, pretty much taking the refugees' word for it most of the time. However, in the last 25 years, we've had 21 major terrorists who abused the refugee program as a way of getting into the United States. Now, we're putting American interests first, saying, well, the, the claim of the refugee is going to be secondary to the safety interests of the United States, and we'll see. But I think that 93% is going to come down, and our safety level is going to go up. Let me give you another example. Uh, NATO. In 2006, the NATO countries agreed to spend uh, 2% of GDP. Uh, right now, only five of the 28 countries are doing it. Our previous attitude had been, well, just let them do what they want. Now we're saying America first. Trump has said we won't support you unless you meet your obligation. It's working. Okay, time is up on that one. We move now to Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, how do you declare on the motion? John, I'm going to try to make this unanimous and vote yes. <laughs> your minute starts now. Just so all of you know where you, I'm coming from, according to the president of the United States Twitter feed, I'm clueless, incompetent, and to quote, one of the very dumbest people on television. <laughs> so there any no, you're applauding that? You agree? <laughs> So there are any number of resolutions I would disagree with and come down on the anti-Trump side. Is he a commendable person? Can he keep track of our aircraft carrier strike groups? Does he have small hands? But this one is just common sense. If Trump understood the fraught history of this phrase from the 1930s, he would have had to read some history books. We can strike that possibility right off the top. What he clearly means and has said repeatedly is he wants to put the national interest and our citizens first. And you can disagree with what policies he thinks meets that test. But no politician ever goes out there and says, look, guys, I really want you to support this policy. It will hurt Americans and help some other country abroad. So let me finish with this 
question. If not America first, what country do you want to put first? Perfect timing. <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, author of the Washington Post Right Turn blog, how do you declare? I am going to break the unanimity and vote no. Your 60 seconds starts now. All right. Um, America first is such a silly idea, not even Donald Trump could have uh, adopted. He has, in essence, um, repudiated most of what he advocated during the campaign because America is the leader of the free world. It does guarantee the international order that has kept the peace that has provided prosperity to democracies for 70 years. He has, for example, gone ahead and uh, dropped a very big bomb on Afghanistan. He is reviewing the battle plans. He still wants to be engaged, still wants to destroy ISIS. Uh, He is not leaving NATO. In fact, he's been uh, glad-handing and affirming that NATO is no longer obsolete. Um, You can differ with how he's gone about it, Um, but it's very clear that in concept um, he has not applied it because it it cannot be applied. America must be the leader. If not, bad actors take over. We've seen plenty of examples of that. And so uh, in that, I commend him. Thank you. Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent for Slate. On the motion, America first is a sound policy direction. How do you declare? Declare no. So... I think it's worth going back to the origins of the phrase America first, right? This is a phrase from the 1930s. It's a phrase associated with isolationism and anti-Semitism. It is a phrase adopted by people who did not want the United States to go to war against Nazi Germany. That origin is relevant to how we think about what America first means in the Trump administration. What it means in the Trump administration are policies that don't put Americans first. They put particular kinds of Americans first. Immigrants are not put first. Muslims are not put first. The kinds of Americans favored by the Trump administration uh, are, it's an, it's an exclusive category. And so if, if that's what we mean by America first, sort of this exclusive ethno-nationalist vision of the country, then obviously, no, it's nonsense. If we're going to broaden it out to mean, oh, yeah, America is great, we should do things for Americans, that sounds cool, then, like, yeah, of course people are going to say America first is a sound policy direction. But in terms of its practical applications, as we're seeing from this administration, it's, uh, it's bunk. Thank you. Okay, we have 14 minutes to talk about this, and I want to go to Chris Kobach. First of all, I want to point out that it's three yeses and two noes on the motion America first is a sound policy direction. Chris Kobach, um, Jamel Bowie making the argument that the, the actual historical origins of the term put off a stink from this term that, are, that still persists and actually characterizes certain attitudes that the Trump administration, he says, are pursuing and he finds uh, uh, undesirable. What's your response to that? Well, I would say that when he articulated the, the view America first throughout the campaign, I don't think he was doing so with uh, echoes of the 1930s in, in people's minds. I think most people probably don't think of that when they think America first, uh, especially in the context of the last few years where you've seen, you, know, you, you name the, inst- the international institution where the United States seems to be paying more than its fair share and getting less than its fair share out of it. And so, uh, you know, while I certainly agree that there is that history, I don't think that, that this, this phrase has the same meaning today. Jennifer Rubin. 
Oh, come, come, Chris. I think we know exactly what that means. And we know, Mr. Bannon, what it means. We know that Donald Trump uh, practically endorsed uh, Marine Le Pen, who is a fascist, who is an America first in French garb. So, of course, we know what he means. We also know what he means when he hires people who have engaged, dabbled with, uh, encouraged anti-Semites, white nationalists. We know exactly what he means. Uh, Ian Bremer, I'd like you to take this on now. I, I know that your point is is not this question about the origins of the term, but I would like you to respond to that to that critique of the of the America First concept. Sure, we know where it came from. There's a lot of people that didn't want to get involved in World War II, Charles Lindbergh and the rest. Uh, but I mean, my point is not that, look the, the 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 issue we are debating here is not whether we like America First or whether we would vote for it. It's whether it's sound. And you know, when I look at the, geo, the, the economic recession of 2008, the United States had to respond with TARP, trillion-dollar bailout, Bush and Obama. You know why? Because if we didn't, our economy was going down with everyone else's. We are now talking about a geopolitical recession, whether the United States wants to be fighting wars in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, places like that. There, if the United States doesn't do as much, Syrians can't swim here. Obama actually said, look, ISIS is the JV team. The rest of the sentence was in their ability to hit the United States. That's true. And the fact that I would like us to be a country where the Statue of Liberty really stands for something and we're not anymore doesn't mean it's not sound policy. It just means I'm not happy with it. Rich Lowry. Well, again, this, this is a theoretical discussion. Donald Trump does not know the historical resonances of this phrase. It was 70 years ago. As Chris points out, most Americans do not know the historical resonances of this phrase. If we were debating this question in the 1930s, I would be on the other side. We are not in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, Ted Cruz, I guess Jen would consider him an anti-Semite as well or a budding anti-Semite because he actually used this phrase uh, during the campaign. And it was just a way to No, denote. he's just unprincipled. Okay, fine. But he's not anti-Semite. So, you act, so you, people can use this phrase and it's okay. And the way Trump means it is to denote we're not going to engage in major land wars to try to democratize other countries and we're not going to harm our economy to supposedly save the planet and we're not going to welcome anyone who wants to come here, whether they are going to thrive in the society or not. That is common sense. Kimmel Bowie. So the, the notion that American politicians should work in the interest of Americans is, is banal, right? That's, that's just what politics is. And so to use a phrase like America first, regardless of whether or not Donald Trump knows its origins, actually conveys something. Words have a meaning. Phrases have a meaning. Symbols have meaning. And so... Whether or not America First is a sound policy direction depends on what America First means in our history. And what it means is not simply putting the best, best interests of Americans first. What it means is a particular vision of nativism, a particular vision of exclusivity, a particular kind of America that works for some of us. People who look like me, not in that group. Jamel, are you saying he's... And he's works for others. You're, you're, you're contradicting yourself. Uh, you don't mind me. Because you're saying... Donald Trump doesn't know the real meaning of this phrase, but he really means it in this nefarious no, way. No, 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 no. That's you're not saying what I'm he saying. Doesn't, he doesn't understand That's, and that doesn't is, mean. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that America First has a meaning independent of Donald Trump. And whether or not Donald Trump likes the fact that it has this meaning actually affects how we should understand 
what it means for it to be sound policy. And then when we look at the kinds of things Donald Trump is doing from immigration policy, from refugee policy, from from appointing or nominating Jeff Sessions to be uh, attorney general of the United States, then there is a connection between what's happening today in that meeting in the past. And okay. that is, that is yeah. vital. Hang on, that is hang on one second. I, I, we haven't heard from Chris in a bit. I want to go, I want to go Chris to but, Jennifer but to Ian. Go we, ahead, Chris. We are a uh, democratic republic. We are a place where the, the voters have decided in the, in the electoral college uh, who's going to be president. And, <laughs> and that's the way the system works, and, and, thankfully. And the, uh, the, the point is that we can say, well, this term meant something to an audience that in the 1930s. They would have thought something else. But we're, we're talking about the English language as it's used today. And America first, buy American, uh, and, 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 and give priority to American interests is what the Trump campaign articulated. And like it or not, uh, he, he won the election largely because that was his central message, uh, or that was the theme that united the Make America Great uh, message. And now he's not following it. It's one of the policies, one of the stances. I'm very pleased that he has thrown overboard with a whole bunch of the other ones. Um, he is engaged in Syria. He issued an order for a purely humanitarian strike, something President Obama did not do. He is bent on defeating ISIS, so um, I suppose he does think that uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq uh, pose some sort of threat to us. He has reaffirmed NATO. Sure, he wants them to spend more money, but every president does. He just makes a bigger deal of it. Uh, Every single Secretary of State has tried to get NATO to pay up. Um, He is taking on the North Korean threat. That's... um, a, a international project. He's trying to work with China to get North Korea to disable their uh, nuclear program. This is not America first. This is good old internationalist, sound thinking, respect for our allies, American leadership in the world. I, I'm Ian sorry. Bremer. I, I, I want to bring I, Ian Bremmer. I, I think the, the point I guess I push back hardest on is the notion that America first, if you don't say it's nefarious, is banal. And I don't believe that at all. You obviously don't either because you're saying he's arguing against it. Leaving aside that in consistency, we have um, unilateralism is what Trump is about, right? America First is basically saying there are a lot of alliances we've had around the world, and we've been constrained because we're forced to act in certain ways. There are values of liberal democracy, which frankly we don't live up to very well, but we're going to be aligned with countries because they support it. Trump saying, I'm going to work more closely with the Turks, I'm going to engage more closely if I can with the Russians. Again, you may not like it. That is a very different kind of policy. And certainly you can have a bomb of Syria and be America first because you're not asking your allies in advance, oh, will you do this with me? Or am I going to get support for that? Then I'll go in. No, Trump did that unilaterally in a fairly limited and defined way on the back of support from his uh, defense advisors. That, that strikes me as perfectly we're, consistent. We're going to go Rich first. Lowry and then Jamil Bowie. Yeah, uh, these, these con- yes, there have been some contradictions, but Trump said throughout the campaign, he was going to bomb the heck out of ISIS. So it's not surprising that he's bombing ISIS or a contradiction or a, a, a contradiction of America first. Same thing, Jen is shocked that President Trump dropped a big bomb on Afghanistan. This is the least shocking thing that's happened in the last 90 days. North Korea, look, go and read his foreign policy speeches. Last April, last fall, he talks about North Korea being an enormous problem that he's going to focus on. He's going to try to pressure the Chinese to do more about it. So I, I think Jen has kind of a, a, a definition. She has made up 
of America's First that is totally removed from things that Trump actually has said in formal speeches. I'm, I'm, well, I, wait, wait, I wanted to go to Jamel next, but because of the direct attack on Jennifer, I'm going to give Jennifer... Can you do it in 15 seconds? Uh, I'll give you 20 seconds. All right, I'll give you 20 um, seconds. Donald Trump, for example, said, who cares about Ukraine? Let the, Ukrainian, let the Ukrainians deal with it. Let Europeans do it. He's not doing that because, of course, that's an insane policy that would um, destroy the concept of national sovereignty, that would put NATO at risk. He's dumped that. Good for him. That's not an, that's not an America first policy. That's a Europe-Western alliance first policy. Jamil. I, I want to harp on this point that like symbols are a thing and they, they, they actually mean something. That, again, if we were simply talking about... If we were talking about mere unilateralism, we would say, is unilateralism a sound policy? If you're talking about uh, if, should the United States government focus its material resources on American citizens primarily, we would, we would use that terminology. But America first has a particular symbolic meaning. Well, I, I grew up... Uh, let me say this. Sure. I grew up in Southern Virginia. I grew up in, a lot of, in, a, in places where lots of people flew Confederate flags. Some of them my friends, people who said, no, this is just a symbol of my Southern heritage. This is just a symbol of my sense of defiance against uh, an overbearing government. Whatever. It remains true that that symbol has a meaning independent of what those people want it to mean. And that when evaluating what they're doing, you have to keep that meaning in mind. And so we can, you can, uh, this is not to say that you shouldn't think America First is a sound policy uh, direction, although I do not. It's to say that, um, it is to say that you can't simply bracket what the phrase actually means in American history. Jamel, the, the, the consensus on, on the board, on the panel, seems to be that Trump himself didn't know that history, and so, and, and that that seems contradictory <laughs> to the notion that he would then consciously use it. So how do you resolve that? So I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a contradiction. It is, so what I'm arguing is that there is this history that America First has a pretty well-defined meaning in the context of American history. Trump does not know this whatsoever, but Trump is taking actions that are consistent with what that meant in American history. And so regardless sort of what of what Trump cares about uh, or what Trump knows, as observers and as people analyzing this, we should keep that in mind. Chris Kobach. I'm, I'm finding it hard to uh, comprehend this position because you're saying that the, the term, the words are almost forbidden to use because if you use them, you, you, you bring up images of the, the past. But the, but, the, but the rest of us are saying that this is so obvious that we have to put America first, so maybe we just have to use a synonym for America first because those, that particular term... Uh, is incorrect, but but I would even disagree that you, you know you're saying that he um, has echoes of the 1930s America first. No, he clearly doesn't. He's willing to project American power internationally uh, when he feels there is a clear balance of interests in favor of the United States. So I don't think America first today means isolationism. America first today means we're going to see if it's good for us. If it's good for us, we will strike internationally. If it's not good for us, we're hanging back. Admittedly, I was thinking more of the anti-Semitism part, but that's fair. Well. Where, where, that's does, a, that's where do issues of trade come into Questions of trade come into this, Rich Lowry? Um, yeah, in Trump's view, we have um, basically been ripped off by these trade deals. I think this is a case where he is not uh, defining the national interest appropriately. And there are some of those. Jen's point about NATO, it's not an anti-American uh, first policy to be pro-NATO. It's actually in our interest to be pro-NATO. And that's something he figured out when he actually got in the big chair 
in the White House and had some people advising him actually knew what they're talking about. And to Jamal's point that we're turning to the 1930s, Jamal. what is, sorry, what is the uh, war, world war that we're staying out of? Trump actually thinks, and other people think, we're in a war with radical Islam, and he's been completely consistent, saying we're going to go and smash them by any means necessary, and he's in favor of enormous military buildup. So if your argument is just sort of inadvertently, somehow symbolically, he's returning to the policies, that's just obviously not the case. Let's bring, bring in Jennifer. Well, Thank ri- you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich, because he's very clever, has managed to define anything that Trump does as America first, regardless of whether it's in support of an international alliance, regardless of how it is. And we can play that game because, in essence, as several of my uh, fellow debaters have said, um, it's meaningless because all presidents pursue their self-interest. Is that what what Jamel means by it's it's a banal statement to make? To some degree it is. Um, What he was saying is that, um, and this is I think um, sort of the menace that is at the heart of his philosophy, that somehow elites, um, and we can talk about who he thinks those are, have sold out America by helping other people at our expense. I don't think that was ever true. I don't think... um, even in his worst days, that's what um, either President Bush or President Trump uh, or President uh, Obama was doing. But that's the tale he has told. And the phrase he uses is an, meant as an invective towards other people who have opposed his views. He says, you haven't put America first. In essence, you've been a traitor. And that's the language and that's the dialogue that Donald Trump uses. Ian, Ian Bremmer. Very important point here, which is that there is a belief uh, on the part of many in the Trump administration uh, that you have a series of U.S. CEOs, U.S. bankers. They say they're American, but actually there's nothing American about them. They they will hide behind uh, their shareholder and fiduciary responsibility. And if it turns out the taxes happen to be cheaper uh, in Ireland, they'll do a corporate inversion. They're not American companies anymore. And the perspective is that those organizations with immense money and special interests have been able to capture the American political process against the interest of the average American. That makes a lot of sense to a lot of average Americans and why they don't support a lot of the free trade. I don't think that's fake. I think it's real. It doesn't resonate with me, a wealthy New Yorker, but it resonated with my brother who voted for Trump. And I think that's interesting. Finally, we should remember where America first came from in this campaign, which was Maggie Haberman and David Sanger interviewed Donald Trump on foreign policy. It was the first time, and they asked if he was an isolationist, and he responded strongly against it. He's like, no, people are taking advantage of us. I want better trade deals. We're the superpower. We should act like it on behalf of the American people. And they said, well, what about America first? Would you consider that a a good definition of you? And he said, yeah, yeah, America first sounds good. So look, if you think the New York Times is anti-Semitic and that they were the ones that pulled this from the 30s, you can have that. That's not my view, Personal. Thank you. That concludes this debate, debate number one, on the night of unresolved Trump's first 100 days. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to have you vote now your view on this debate to see if you've changed your mind, if you swung in one direction or the other. Same vote as before. The motion is the same. America first is a sound policy direction. Vote number one, if your feeling is yes with this. Vote number two, if your position is no whether it changed to no or stuck with no. 
And while you're doing that, we are going to move on to our second resolution. The motion is this, resolved. The stock market says Trump is good for the economy. The debater who will speak first on this, Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, on the motion, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? I am a yes. You have one minute. Uh, The timing here is quite notable. The night of the election, futures fell precipitously. Paul Krugman predicted the market would never recover, and immediately thereafter, it went on a huge run up. And it's not hard to understand why this happened. The market considers tax cuts, deregulation, infrastructure spending to be stimulative, because broadly speaking, they are stimulative. In fact, most economists agree that if you cut the corporate tax rate, that directly increases corporate profits and therefore makes companies more valuable. So just the expectation of corporate tax reform alone would be enough to drive the market up. And even Democrats of good standing, like the former Obama economist Austin Goolsby, say this fundamentally is the dynamic that's driving the market. So to vote on this resolution, you don't have to vote on whether you like Trump's economic policies. You just have to acknowledge what's obvious. The stock market and Wall Street like his economic policies. Thank you. Jennifer Rubin, on the motion, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? It will be a no. Uh, The stock market obviously got very excited once they thought the promise of Donald Trump and the policies that some of the things which uh, listed were going to come their way. In fact, none of that is coming their way. And that's why you saw the bond market begin to tank last week. It's coming to realization this man is not capable of delivering on tax reform. He's not capable of delivering on health care. He's not uh, capable of delivering basically on anything that has to go through Congress. He has done some regulatory uh, reform, and they sort of like that. Um, But ultimately, what does Wall Street tell us? It's a prediction of profits. And if profits are not there, the market will go down. Linking his success to the market is a very dangerous strategy. And when there is a course correction, it goes the other way. I'm sure Rich will be arguing that uh, Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. Thank you, Jennifer Rubin. Uh, Jamel Bowie, the motion again, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? No. Uh, so the resolution, right, is the stock market is saying Trump is good for the economy. Do, is the stock market correct, right? Is, is the stock market... Yeah, that's the sense of it. Right. Is the stock market... Should we trust the evaluation of the stock market? Now, for my part, I'm not sure that I do. Uh, I certainly, you know, I... I save some some portion of my savings in an index fund. You know, I hope the stock market does well. But in terms of the broad economy, how it works for most Americans, how it works for ordinary people, I'm not sure that I trust the stock market's evaluation of whether or not Trump is good. And looking at the Trump administration's proposed policies from tax reform, which is heavily weighted towards the wealthiest and the largest corporations, to health care, uh, which uh, is weighted towards taking it away from people. Um, I, I think the stock market is wrong, uh, that the Trump administration is not going to be good for the economy for the reason that the Trump administration will be harmful to the vast majority of Americans who participate in and work in that economy. Thank you. Jamel Bowie. 
Stock market says Trump is good for the economy. Ian Bremmer, how do you declare? Oh, it's really close. Um, I'm going to say yes, though. In another 100 days, I'd probably say no. Uh, it's No, 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 because it's in the process of getting to no, but it's still saying yes right now. I mean, when you talk to actual market participants, they're still kind of thinking, yeah, it's really hard to govern the United States. It takes a long time, even with Republicans in the House and in the Senate. But everything he's saying on tax sounds good to us. We like it. And executive orders, regulatory rollback. Fact is, maybe bad for the environment, but over the course of the next year, year and a half, you're going to see frackers with a dollar to two dollar cheaper ability to produce energy. That's not only a tax benefit for the average American, but it's good for that economy. Uh, coal certainly isn't coming back on the basis of anything that Trump is doing. But again, we're not talking about that. Long term, is this good for the dollar? May not be, right? If you're going to trade war between the U.S. and China, that's a problem. How about a war with North Korea? We'd hate that. Is any of that priced into the market? Absolutely zero. The market is very short term. And right now, the animal spirits, you just saw the markets in Europe go up on France. That's ludicrous, except it's short term. Right now, markets are saying Trump's good. <laughs> Chris Kobach, stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? Obviously, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, don't see, I, I think it's difficult to argue otherwise. I mean, if you look at the graph of the Dow Jones, uh, right up until November 4th, it's going along at, I guess from your perspective, it's going along like this. And then on November 4th, which is the Friday before the election, it's at 17,888. And then the next week, it rockets upward and continues on an upward climb until the beginning of February, and it's up above 20,000. It's been above 20,000 since the beginning of February, sometimes getting as high as, as uh, 21,000. But it's stayed way up there. So I think that the, this isn't coincidence, it's causation. Clearly, the election caused the stock market to surge. I think Rich is, is right. A lot of that has to do with corporate earnings, right? Corporate earnings drive the stock market. And the Trump administration, along with many in Congress, have said that they want to reduce the corporate income tax, which is among the highest in the world. If corporate income tax comes down, corporate earnings go up. And then you also see consumers. It's not just the companies. Consumers. The Consumer Confidence Index uh, also took a positive uh, switch right after the election. It has remained positive for 22 weeks. So clearly, it's good for the economy from both perspectives. All right, let's jump in, and Jennifer Rubin is ready to go. Um, Picking up on what Jamel said, the question here is um, whether it is good for the economy. And I don't think some of my fellow debaters really is sort of really honed in question? on that. Yeah, that is, whether it is well, good for the economy. The stock market thinks it's the stock market. The stock market, market. Uh, well, says. The stock market thinks it's good for the economy. Is the stock market correct? Oh, well, it's a, it's a little murky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wait, what, is the stock market correct as part of the question? Technically and literally, it, it is. But I think the sense of it is more: um, is the stock market, is the apparent stock market endorsement of the um, Trump presidency uh, well founded, well grounded? Exactly. And to that point, um, I think it's not. Obviously, um, we have real systemic problems in the United States having to do with low productivity. The things that Donald Trump is proposing, by and large, do nothing for those things. Um, They would make some of them worse in many instances um, to the extent that we need uh, inputs in education, science, and the rest. He's really sort of decimated that part of the uh, federal budget, which is the good stuff that people like. Um, He um, has this notion that a supply-side tax cut dug up from the 1980s is the way to go, um, that is going to give relatively little to the small guy. Um, So the 
issues that we're facing, which are how do you prepare American workers to get the open jobs, um, not simply to make jobs, but to have Americans to fill them, that is in large part um, the the problem that many people are trying to solve. Um, and I would commend you to take a look um, at a piece uh, today in the American uh, Enterprise Institute, okay. um, which uh, essentially uh, makes that case. Let, let me try to patch this over a little bit, because I can see the looks of consternation. Uh, hey, I don't look consternated at all. <laughs> I thought you, okay. Um, I, I think the sense of it is those investors who are enthusiastic about what's going on, are they crazy or are they onto something? So I'll take that question to you, Jamel. Those investors are most concerned with their short-term economic uh, prospects. And I'm sure that for them, there is something happening here. The, pro- the promise of deregulation, of tax cuts is great for them. But if we're talking about the economy writ large, the economy is not simply a bunch of Wall Street investors. The economy uh, is producers. It's ordinary workers. It's, a, it's tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who, uh, whose prospects – it's not clear Trump will actually be good for. And so I think the investors are wrong. And if, they, if, the, if, the, if the resolution here is evaluating whether or not they are right or wrong, I'm still going to stick with no here. Rich Lowry, do you want to... So the, the question is whether the stock market is right. Yeah, it's, it's, the question isn't is the stock market. The, the question isn't is the stock market a good indicator all the time? But well, I mean, these, change your these are people who are are. You can switch your vote. They, they really have money in the game. Um, they're not just journalists popping off. And uh, this this economy <laughs> not just off head editors popping off. I guess I guess all of us up here who qualify for that, except for maybe Chris. Um, and you know, the economy has been dragging along at two percent or uh, less growth. And I think part of the market rally was just relief. There's not going to be more regulation. There's not going to be higher taxes. And um, I don't think the Trump agenda is a complete one, but it's a good start to deregulate, take the boot of of the government off businesses, to get a corporate system that actually makes sense. We have the highest corporate tax rate in the advanced world, which is a huge drag uh, on our our companies. And... um, I, I'm not a fan of infrastructure spending, but at least in the short term, that is stimulative. So I don't think the, the stock market is irrational here. Unfortunately, Trump doesn't seem to be able to do any of this. Um, we don't see any evidence that he's able to deliver on these very large legislative projects. Now, maybe things will turn around dramatically, but if you haven't done something in the first 100 days, in fact, you've failed in the first 100 days on each of your big legislative uh, initiatives, with the exception of the Supreme Court, um, that doesn't bode very well. So I don't know whether these people are good Market watchers, I suppose they are, because they make their living, but they're bad political watchers because they haven't evaluated how poor he is at delivering. I completely disagree with Jen. The the, the stock market and the American economy are not driven by votes that members of Congress take, despite the advertisements that they show you saying that if you elect me, I will cause our economy to get stronger uh, or whatever. Our economy is driven by psychological factors, by consumer confidence, by people making decisions that in turn push other people to make the same decisions. That's the market, not the economy. Well, but the... 
The, 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 exactly. And the market, the, the free market decisions, in turn, pr- drive the strength of the economy. And so if you look at, sometimes we do have a stock market where the stock market is going up and consumer confidence is not especially high. But here we have an interesting coincidence of the stock market going up dramatically at the same time that consumer confidence is also turning around in a dramatic way. So therefore, I think the stock market is going to be reflective of people buying, people building homes, manufacturing investing in plant and equipment. And so, therefore, I don't think it's much of a stretch at all to say if you're going to bet money on the stock market or, or bet money by investing in your corporation, now is probably a good time to do it because all the factors are put. And let me just give you a couple numbers. Pew Research says that Americans currently hold the most positive assessment of the U.S. economy <coughs> since 2007. Uh, Gallup Small Business Index reflects the fact that small business owners are the most optimistic they've been since 2007. So if you have this confidence and optimism, it's almost self-fulfilling in the way our economy works. I mean, one, one interesting wrinkle to throw at you, Chris, is that Immediately after the election, when asked about their assessment of the economy and broken down by partisanship, Republicans immediately went from being, no, this economy is crap, to this economy is great. And so how much of what you're describing is actually representative of anything? How much of it is just sort of the irrational passions of partisans? And in which case, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand how you, can, how you can then say, oh, well, look, Trump is, Trump is causing all of this, Trump is actually doing something here. Um, when, when the actual conditions on the ground haven't really changed. Ian Bremmer. Yeah, so look, uh, first of all, uh, the United States is not Turkey or Russia. Um, corporations don't expect U.S. officials to do an awful lot. They just want the government to keep working. Um, you ask the average American CEO, will they invest more in this market as long as you don't actively break it? In other words, don't break through the debt limit. Don't shut government down. But I don't want you to touch an awful lot, right? Like, I don't want a lot of additional legislation. From that perspective, accomplishing little on the legislative front and regulatory rollback is kind of a corporate wet dream, right? (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I do think that if you want to go animal spirits, as it were, um, that is going to get you uh, more benefits. And and it definitely shows that the economy is doing better and that the stock market is doing better. I think the likely connection of that to the average American worker is increasingly distant. Rich Larry. Right? Right. That's clear. But, you know, when uh, talking about, I was talking to Larry Summers recently, and Larry was looking at the OMB and their projections for where the budget was going to be and the fact that they used a fairly aggressive sense, high, two-point, high percentage um, increase in the U.S. economy. And Larry is no fan of Trump's. And Larry said, yeah, yeah, that may be a little aggressive, but yeah, give it on the basis of what they're going to do. You're going to get some short-term growth here. For, it's not good for us long-term. For, for our podcast listeners who don't know who Larry Summers is. Former Secretary of Treasury, now uh, professor at Harvard, um, and but Democrat, right? I mean, a serious Democrat. No fan of the Trump administration. No fan of the Secretary of Treasury. No fan of this entire team. In fact, I think is he Is there anyone that, he likes? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We get along very well. But, but, leaving, but leaving that aside, um, this was a guy who clearly was saying that in the short term, the response to your question, one of the biggest Democratic minds on the economy recently believes that the stock market is right on this. Jennifer Rubin. Um, I guess Chris and Rich owe Barack Obama a huge apology because if their definition is that the stock market takes off, that's good for the economy, the stock market had a huge run-up during President Obama. So obviously that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is 
growth in average wages. We're talking about employment. We're talking about uh, a higher participation rate. We're talking about, in essence, a recovery for the middle class. Um, and the things that Donald Trump has recommended um, are not really going to get us there. Um, some of the things um, that uh, he might want to do might get us there. But again, he's not getting infrastructure spending. He's not getting any of this through. So uh, the ability of someone to deliver on an agenda that is responsive to the actual needs right now, which are low productivity, a mismatch between labor and business, he's not going to do it for us. Okay, I want to point out just for the record on this, on this motion, we have three yeses and two noes. And I want to go to Rich Lowry. Yeah, I would say um, it, partisans on each side should have a little note of modesty here. George W. Bush pursued a very traditional Republican economic policy. Didn't work out so great. Uh, President Obama pursued a very traditional liberal economic policy. He stabilized the financial system in the midst of of the financial crisis, which is significantly to his credit, uh, partly responsible for the uh, stock market running up. But it hasn't worked great either. And I think Trump at his best, and this is an optimistic interpretation, he's going to do kind of these traditional stimulative things to try to create a broader environment of, for growth and create more jobs. And then he's going to focus on the lower part of the income distribution where people have really been hurting and haven't felt the recovery. And he's going to try to get a tighter labor market down there, not just through more jobs, but discouraging foreign competition, both by trying to create a culture that tilts more against outsourcing and also by reducing the flow of low-skilled immigration, which comes in here and competes against low-skilled native and legal immigrant workers. Jim Elboy. I'm just... So I'm skeptical that any of this will actually happen for, for gen-stated reasons, right? That we have, no, we have no actual concrete evidence that President Trump or his team is capable of, care, of pushing through or carrying through any kind of legislation to that, um, to that effect. And that's assuming that's like that's, that's buying your premise that this stuff would help low-wage and, and, and uh, middle-income workers. Um, for, for my part, even if even if Trump were successful, the kinds of policies that the Trump administration supports, they say nothing about wealth inequality. They say nothing about racial wealth inequality. They say nothing about the concentration of business and corporations across the country, which does have a deleterious effect on people in the middle of the country. Uh, the Trump administration's health care policies would directly take money out of people's pockets. So, you know, add it all together and you have... A, a footprint for the typical American um, that is very negative. And if, if we're thinking about the economy in broad terms beyond just Wall Street and investors, then, again, if we're looking at that resolution, I don't think there's much evidence at all that, uh, that Trump would be great for for the economy. Okay, I see uh, Jamal and Jen shifting a little bit to say, okay, yeah, we're, we're not going to be able to win this debate on, on GDP growth, so we're going to have a more nuanced view of what good for the economy means. Well, I'll take them on on that. Uh, Jen says good for the economy means that the uh, lower income workers see wage improvement. It is undoubtedly true that there has been wage stagnation for, I think, going on seven years now. You have just seen that wage is just flat. Um, in blue-collar jobs. Now, if we do what Trump is already doing, he doesn't need to wait on Congress to do this. He's already increased uh, removals of people illegally in the country. Uh, we're at 21,000 now since, uh, as of uh, late March, and uh, a year ago we were at 16,000 over the same period. 
you will, with the removal of these individuals, open up jobs for Americans who are out of work. And that will, in turn, cause wages to go up, too, as, we, as you decrease the supply with the illegal labor leaving the pool. And that's why blue-collar workers did something really amazing that ended up winning uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan for Trump, as they voted overwhelmingly for Trump, because they know intuitively that in the job market where they are fighting uh, fist to fist for those jobs, that this will improve their chances of holding jobs, improve the, the, the level of wages. Another example is favoring jobs over when you have a jobs versus environment uh, conflict. Trump has said he's going to pick jobs. So Keystone XL, he's already done that. And so that's another example of jobs created in the short term without having to wait on Congress. Jennifer Rubin. Well, I suppose if you believe that throwing out illegal immigrants is going to create coal jobs and industrial jobs in the Midwest, (laughs) then Chris is right. If you actually think that the problem for those displaced workers has nothing whatsoever to do with illegal immigrants who aren't even in the states that we're talking about, then I think that's not a very good argument. So, nor do I think, for very classical conservative economic reasons, that buy American makes any sense whatsoever. It doesn't. We have American companies that have supply chains. That doesn't make any sense. We have foreign companies that are located here that employ lots of people. So, that doesn't make any sense. So, a lot of the stuff um, may make them feel good. Maybe they don't like illegal immigrants for other reasons, but it's not going to help the economy. No, no, please. No, come on. If, if, I'm if here, Chris, if let, me, let, me right answer, let, me, let me give Chris, since yeah. it was a direct attack in 20 seconds, really to make it 20 seconds, and then I'm going to go to, to Rich and then to Ian. Look, we, Jen, we have illegal workers in every state. And when you have that, a, a large presence of illegal labor, it takes what once They're were, tiny in these states. What, what, it tiny. takes jobs that once you, and you also suggested that these are jobs Americans won't do anyway. Look at I didn't packing. say that. In Kansas, uh, we have illegal, illegal labor that. has displaced U.S. citizens in meatpacking. Meatpacking meat, meat used to be a job a U.S. citizen could raise a family on and have a really good week. We have a, a team, a football team in the NFL named after the meatpacking industry. Now everybody seems to think that's a job that U.S. citizens won't do, and it's in part because the illegal labor has come in and depressed wages, so U.S. citizens don't yeah. take those yeah, jobs. Larry. Union busting yeah, depressed think... wages, not, not illegal immigrants. Um, union and non-union. <laughs> it's, it's true, in union and non-union meatpacking plants. doesn't Rich matter Larry. whether it's Jen believes in classic free market economics, except for when it comes to supply and demand in the labor market. If you have something like 40% of workers in this country without a high school degree who are immigrants, that is going to have an effect on people's wages. Actually, I do believe in classical economics. I love free market people who say supply and demand always applies but we could have as many immigrants as we want and has no effect on our economy that's or because, on our wages. That's because, Rich, you don't understand the labor fallacy, the lump of labor fallacy, which is that it's not like supply and demand, that because workers also create demand, also spur other industries, that it doesn't work that way. Ian Bremmer, so you're get I would the suggest you pick up a good book from the Hoover Institute <laughs> and they'll explain let, it. Let, let's, so let's not get so personal, please. <laughs> yeah, there we go. John Corcoran. Look, I mean, labor increasingly is going away or coming because of technology, not because of globalization, not because of the jobs moving. 
And I mean, look, no, this wasn't addressed under Bush. It wasn't addressed under Obama. It's not being addressed under Trump. So we can take that really off the table. It's not about that. What's interesting is, are we going to see, given that there's this massive inequality, are we going to see increased economic growth under the policies that we put in place? And in the short term, the answer to that, according to not only the economists and the animal spirits and the markets and the investment flows, is obviously and evidently yes. Is it sustainable over the medium to long term? Probably not, especially with the kinds of policies Trump's going to put in place that everyone else is talking about. But that's not the question. And, so that, concludes, the question, or yes. and that concludes this debate. <laughs> debate number two on our night of unresolved, the first 100 days of Trump. We'd like to ask you to vote again. Go to the keypads at your seats. Same as before, the motion, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. One for yes, two for no. If you press the wrong button, just correct yourself quickly, and the system will lock in your correct vote. We're going to move on to resolution number three. Resolution number three is Trump has picked a terrific team. Random selection of our first speaker on this one, Chris Kobach. Chris Kobach, on the motion, Trump has picked a terrific team. How do you declare? Against the, uh, the, the genders of the audience, I'm going to say yes on this. <laughs> Your one minute starts now. No challenge too great. No, look, uh, the, the Trump's, look, all uh, presidents, to a certain extent, pick a great team. There, you always get the, the cream of the crop wanting to be in the president's cabinet, in the White House. So you always have talented people who, who've risen to the top of their field. So this is kind of a tough question. I'm looking at it from, is this team talented in what he has chosen them to do, which is execute uh, the laws of the United States? And, and so how do you measure that? Well, they all have fine resumes, but let's look at uh, the White House team. Um, one thing we can see that Trump has done very far and above what other presidencies have done, and that is in the first 100 days, he's had so far 25 executive orders. And you say, well, executive order, that's no big deal. Actually, it is. It requires a lot of legal analysis and policy analysis and all kinds of eyeballs on it. Uh, 25 of them in the first 100 days. Obama had 19, Bush had 11, Clinton had 13. There's one empirical indicator that his team is getting things done. Now, if you disagree with what they like, you may disagree with what Trump's like. But what, Trump, what Trump likes. But the fact that you disagree with the policy doesn't okay. mean that they're a bad team. Got to stop you. Move on to Rich Lowry on the motion. Trump has picked a terrific team. How do you declare? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Through my extensive reading of Hoover Institution briefing books, over there, <laughs> I, I have learned that it's customary in the United States government for the National Security Advisor to last at least one month, right? <laughs> Michael Flynn didn't make it, and he was actually acting as an agent of foreign interest, Turkish interest, during the campaign. And I also highly doubt it that some of the very best people to advise the President of the United States just happened to be his son-in-law and his daughter, right? Now, Jer- Jared Kushner... By, by all accounts, a very impressive and, and decent guy. But what qualifies him to be quasi-secretary of state? Um, then there's Trump's management style, where you have all these White House advisors. They really they follow themselves around from meeting to meeting like ducks crossing a road because they're all afraid there'll be some major decision made in a snap basis and they'll be left out of it. So look, are there impressive people on the team? Yes. Is it a terrific team? Sadly, no. 
Jennifer Rubin, Trump has picked a terrific team. You say yes or no? I know it's going to shock you, but no. <laughs> I got two words for you. Sean Spicer. <laughs> Steve Bannon. There are many people who are not qualified, and this is the one case where the president has specifically not chosen the cream of the crop intentionally because they have been disloyal in some respect. He has ruled out a whole slew of very fine conservative um, Uh, some Democrats as well, advisors, who could really have helped him here. Um, And he says they can't come on board because they wrote something nasty or they said something nasty. That's his prerogative, but that means he doesn't have the cream of the crop. I also would not bring up executive orders if I were Chris. Um, I do seem to remember a travel ban that was struck down by just about every court, in part because the um, rather um, un- um, uncareful um, White House counsel uh, thought that he could amend it in order to fix the uh, order by excluding uh, green cards when, in fact, the president had to reissue it. And that was one of the major things cited. Okay. um, Okay, you got to stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Jamel Bowie, Trump has picked a terrific team. Are you yes or no? Obviously, I'm a no here. Um, If we're thinking about it on Trump's own terms, has he chosen a team that can competently execute his vision, that can competently run his administration? I think the clear answer is is no. From his White House, Jen mentioned Steve Bannon. uh, He's shown no evidence of being a particularly skilled advisor. The same goes for Stephen Miller, uh, the other one of the two Steves in the White House. If you look at cabinet agencies, uh, Rex Tillerson seems to be growing into the job, but by all accounts, he is not a competent manager of the State Department. Uh, Ben Carson, uh, the Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, doesn't appear to know what the agency is there for. (laughs) Go down the line and you find even even Scott Pruitt, the EPA director, who is there as sort of a critic of the EPA, doesn't appear to be a competent manager (coughs) of the EPA. So even even on the, the terms Trump set up for himself, None of these people seem to be any good at managing government. And this is before we get to the fact that huge numbers of positions haven't even been filled. So, Thank you. Ian Bremmer, on the motion, Trump has picked a terrific team. Are you yes or no? No. <laughs> I, I need to tell the people who can only hear this moment that you did a head fake on that one. I did a head fake on that yeah, one. You're a no. You are a no. I am a no. I don't even believe you're a yes, honestly. <laughs> I think he's screwing with everybody here. Look, the, the, but no, because first of all, you said, did Trump pick a terrific team, right? You can say there are a lot of competent people, more solid than expected. You can't say, first of all, he didn't pick, you do not pick your relatives, right? Your relatives, they're there, they're stuck with them, they're around. He's like, I gotta give them jobs. So there they are, right? I mean, at least Melania's kind of sidelined, so that's a good thing, but... But no, Jared and Ivanka, no. And, and Ben Carson, like, I mean, they wanted a black guy on cabinet. But, but no, but seriously, I don't know much about Jamel's background, but I know he'd be better at HUD than Ben Carson. Right? I mean, I know what it stands exactly. for. Exactly. Rick Perry. He said that that was, he wanted to get rid of three departments, and the one he couldn't remember on the debate stage, they gave to him. Okay? So, I mean, going from this. This is a no. (laughs) All right. I want to point out we have four no's and one yes. Uh, Chris Kobach, 
in the, this is interesting because in the interest of sort of a fair amount of time for both sides, you're going to get a lot more time talking <laughs> than anybody else. So you're on the defensive on this one. So I would answer a few things uh, off the bat. First of all, on Jen's point about the travel ban, why, why therefore you shouldn't use executive or- orders as a measure. No, of- I said this particular White House counsel was incompetent. He didn't save it as he could have by uh, having the president reissue it to remove green card uh, holders. Well, my, my point is this, that re- regardless of whether you're looking at the original executive order or the subsequent executive order, as someone who litigates in the field of, of immigration law, uh, I guarantee and I will bet whatever amount of money you want that when the appeals are done, uh, the travel ban that is currently being litigated will be upheld in court. I guarantee it. It's not even going to be close. One of the things as litigators you find is you, 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 people jurisdiction shop all the time. Well, maybe we should file ex- in this district because there are a lot of good judges who are going to agree with our position. Well, the, the opponents of the travel ban, they picked jurisdictions where they got very lucky in the, in the draw in the judges they got. So I think at the end of the day, when it goes to the Court of Appeals, where that luck doesn't have as much okay. effect, I'm gonna, we're going to win. I'm going to pull you back because we're not, we're, 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 we started moving off and not really... Well, let's go, going back to the cabinet then. Yeah, that's so, where we need to be. Well, right. But I, I, but, but I, so therefore, I stand by my measure that executive orders being issued is really difficult, and they're doing things very quickly, at least on the White House team. And I know that a lot of the criticism is of specific people in the White House, I think those criticisms are incorrect, too. I mean, um, the, the media has portrayed Steve Bannon as this um, Rasputin figure uh, who's, you know, either uh, evil or incompetent, and he's neither. I know him well, and he is extremely bright. He's very gifted at keeping the president focused on the strategic objectives of the administration, which is what his job title is. And so I think, you know, he, Trump was wise to put him in uh, that position. One other point, when you look at the team and you say, well, what about these first hundred days. Why hasn't the State Department accomplished anything yet? Why hasn't this? You, you also have to remember this. Congress, the Senate has been very slow to confirm people, excruciatingly slow to confirm people. So the team is actually not fielding a full team on the field. They're not playing in the NFL with 11 players. They're playing with two players right now, the secretary and the deputy secretary. They don't even have the undersecretaries. I, in the I, I, I want to go to Rich Lowry because you are the only one not frowning. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking of changing my vote just to make it more sporting to uh, support Chris no, here. Stay where you are. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, I, I think the team's gotten better. You know, H.R. McMaster is a great national security advisor, a wonderful man, but it's just not, it's not an impressive team. As Jen pointed out, there, there's, there's a huge swath of the Republican Party that didn't support him or wrote letters saying we're opposed to him. And, you know, for understandable reasons, he wants people loyal to him. So that immediately cuts out a huge element of the talent. Plus, for whatever reason, they've just been very slow to nominate people. So I think the best you could say, the best grade you could give them would be an incomplete. Ian Bremer? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Flynn debacle is already clear and and a world record. Um, But, you know, he did. But then he ended up with a better national security advisor who was not his pick. But the next iteration was good. This is what happened at state. He wanted Giuliani, which would have been an unmitigated disaster. Right. And so then he's like, okay, okay, let me let's try some other people. So he had Romney there, and then he had Stavridis, and he had Hudson, and these were capable people. And he's like, no, no, I don't want any of these guys. Tillerson comes in, who he'd never met before, and he's like, Rex, you know, Rex is a big guy, his name's Rex, kind of looks like a Secretary of State. And I mean, you know, his favorite author's Anne Rand, and Trump thinks he's Howard Rourke. So, I mean, you can see how that works, right? 
but but that wasn't his pick. And so now, of course, you've got to actually, I think, a very capable secretary of state, but one that doesn't actually have access to the president. Right. And so it's not working. And so Tillerson's nowhere. And that's a real problem because he doesn't have staff because he can't promote staff and the staff he want to promote will get stopped by the White House. So like on every front, I mean, I'd love to say you could give this guy an incomplete on this. It's so much worse. Okay, Let me than bring that. in Jennifer Rubin. Um, Ian is right. Um, the problem has not been that the Senate has been excruciatingly slow. They're always excruciatingly slow. It's been that he hasn't bothered to nominate dozens and dozens of jobs. In fact, he's announced that he doesn't need them at all. So he's throwing away hundreds of positions, which, of course, he needs to implement his policy. So not very bright. Um, the, I think the bigger issue with um, Ivanka and with uh, Jared Kushner is not simply that they're totally unqualified, which they are, but that they have, like Trump himself, massive conflicts of interest. And what they are creating is a cesspool of corruption. They are flying in the face of, yes, the emoluments clause, which applies to them because they are White House officials, White House employees as well. Um, And that Republicans, unfortunately, have sort of thrown constitutional niceties and a concern for good governance out the window because it's their guy, so they have to protect him. Well, I guess that's politics, but it's pretty cruddy for the country. Okay. Um, I, I, I want to weave Jamel back into the conversation, but again, I want to I have this sort of ping-pong match with the other side. So, Chris, it's you again, and then I want to go to Jamel. So, okay. so to respond directly, if you could, to the, the issue of uh, conflict of interest. Well, you know, I think you, you, you have conflict of interest questions in all, in all administrations, and obviously when you have... No, you don't. Well, no, you do. No, I mean, you and, don't. And members of, members of secretaries frequently have to recuse themselves, especially at, like, the Justice Department. Attorneys have to recuse themselves all the time. As long as appropriate recusal is done, you can, you can deal with conflicts of interest. Now, again, as long as the recusals occur when recusals... Should no, they actually divest themselves. They actually um, liquidate, and in fact, most of the people in his cabinet, with the exception of his son and daughter, have done so, including Rex Tillerson, to his credit... Um, and there's a very long process they go through. Um, Jared well, and Ivanka still own what they own. They have a conflict. This is well, contrary to what other cabinet officials and other White Houses okay. are Essentially what you're saying is then they, they, they absolutely cannot serve. And if that's your position, that you just can't do that, then that, that, that's okay. fair enough. But, I mean, you're, you're, they're trying to find a way where... <laughs> Well, but I, I, that would be. Or they could sell their stuff. Would be fine, right? They could sell their stuff. No, just no, 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 but if they're not going to do that, then it's fair to criticize them for conflicts of interest. I want to I want to get to something you, you said, Chris, earlier, which was to suggest that because in the future maybe a policy may work out, therefore you can fairly evaluate uh, the team that put it in place as terrific, right? So, like, the travel ban may end up staying in place, and so that reflects well on the people who crafted it. But the fact that the immediate unveiling of the travel ban plunged the administration into chaos, which took weeks to get out of, which likely energized (laughs) the opposition even more, I think is like on its face evidence that the team is not terrific. (laughs) 
if, if, if the Trump administration did any executive order in that issue, in that area of travel and refugees and, immig- and legal immigration, they were going to get sued. So by your definition, they were always going to fail in that because just because a lawsuit happened, which in turn caused the chaos. No, but, but a lawsuit that, that was going to happen no matter what. A lawsuit again. A lawsuit didn't just happen. Like if the travel ban were crafted in a way that could withstand legal scrutiny, yeah, lawsuits would have happened. The ACLU was going to sue no matter what. Right, but, but they, they, they might have lost one or two. I just can't disagree. I, having litigated against these folks, they would have sued no matter what. But let okay. me get, let okay. me address well, a point. We, we can we okay. can keep we can keep on going on this on. This this sort of like uh, this path here, right? So the White House attempted to pass a massive health care reform bill with the help of uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan in a three to four week span. That is not something that terrifically chosen people do. <laughs> uh, just just a, a quick uh, civics reminder: White Houses don't pass bills; Congress passes bills. And are to you, say are that you, are, you, wait, 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 wait. are you telling, no, are you think, telling me that the White House had nothing to do with the attempt to push this bill through? Is that your? Of, is that of what course, you're but the White House cannot unilaterally that's ensure not, that a bill passes. That's not what I'm By saying. that measure, Obama, who I'm had saying. a pretty good start, didn't get any major legislation accomplished. And you would say, well, he didn't get any. Legislation accomplished. Pass a major health care bill in three weeks. Right. And also, just on, on the executive orders, there are two executive orders. They did one that was rushed uh, and um, uh, flawed in lots of ways, and the implementation was terrible. Then they did a second that was much more buttoned up. And to Chris's point, that second got stopped as well, because you have judges uh, who are hostile to this policy and take it upon themselves to impose their policy on the nation, and eventually it'll get to the Supreme Court and it'll pass muster because it's, it's in black and white law in the U.S. Code. He entirely has his authority to do this. Jamil. If it was so obviously insane to attempt to pass or to attempt to rush through a health care bill in three weeks, then why didn't anyone in the White House make that argument to the president? Where, where were the terrifically terrific advisors to tell President Trump that for as much as you may want this policy objective, it is unwise to take this course of action? Because there was a chance that it could have worked. They came within. <laughs> look, no, I mean, look. They came within. They came within what? Twenty votes. I mean, it's you don't say, well, we can't get it done in the hundred days, so let's wait until day one hundred and one to start. You go ahead and you make the push. Now, you're right. It was wrong to establish expectations that we're going to get this done in three weeks, or we, or we're not going to do it at all. I agree with that. But I want to. Uh, uh, tr- turn to another point that some of the uh, folks on the opposite side said, and that is they've attacked specific individuals. Oh, come on. Can you really believe it? You know, they, they put Governor Perry in there or this person here. Look, Trump promised the American people that he was going to turn over the tables and that he was going to aggressively rock the boat when he came to Washington. And so we shouldn't assume that he would come in and appoint the type of person uh, that a typical politician would appoint. I mean, I I really was curious. I didn't have uh, any inside information on which direction he was going to go with a lot of these picks. And it does reflect some of the the promises that he made. I mean, uh, Pruitt uh, in the EPA is a perfect example. Uh, Trump is hostile to 
lot of what the EPA has done. And so it is perfectly uh, expected that he would appoint someone who wants to roll back what the EPA is doing. And so, I, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised. Maybe you can say, well, these are so unconventional. Yeah, they are unconventional. And these are people who may be hostile to the very agency that they're going to. Right. What better person to roll the agency in, back? In I think there is an argument to be made that the appointment of Goldman Sachs generals and gajillionaires is not aligned with a lot of what Trump was saying for his base <laughs> during the election. I'm just There's an argument to be made there, right? <laughs> um, but, but to create a little bit more balance, I mean, I would say it's not like Trump has a monopoly on appointing some inside loyalists that really have no basis to do their job. I mean, I think when Obama first came in as a first-term senator and, you know, a lot of their experienced people were on Team Hillary, he's got Ben Rhodes... He's got Valerie Jarrett. No basis to be in the, smart people. No basis to be in the position they're in. I mean, like, like Steve Miller, like Jarrett. I mean, just from an objective capabilities and experience perspective. The difference being that Obama reads and gets briefings. And Trump doesn't. So in terms of understanding what kind of a team you really need, you want a team that complements the skill sets you have, the skill sets you don't have. And I think that Trump's done a bad job on that. Um, but final point, I, I, look at, I look at someone like Steve Bannon... I don't think he's a disaster. He's a disaster if he runs everything. But if, having someone like that being a voice around the table, a voice that really is necessary to say, wait a second, economic nationalism is important to pay attention to. And wait a second, globalization has hurt a lot. That's a bom- You want some bomb throwers in there. You just don't want them to have the ability to actually launch the bombs, right? <laughs> um, and, 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 and I guess, but to go to the other side, since no one has said these two words yet, let me just end on Jeff. Sessions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Rubin. Um, Trump um, didn't really vet a lot of people, and that's why some 15 people um, have already cycled out of the people he appointed. Um, they really didn't um, have a vetting process, and that's how you got people like uh, Michael Flynn. That's how you got um, people who sort of came and went before you knew who they were. Um, so part of this um, is not simply um, the people who have come in, but everyone who was with him in the transition stage, who granted, we didn't think he was going to win either, but they were not prepared for this, and they did not do a professional job of uh, vetting people. Now, you can bring in all kinds of brilliant outsiders, but it's quite another thing to bring out, bring in someone like Sebastian Gorka, who is, uh, I would suggest you guys all read the forward when you get home this evening, who has really documented horrendous ties with Hungarian fascists. Um, he left um, in quite a huff today when he was asked questions at a college gathering. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen to him. Um, there is a lot of crack pottery. There's a lot of incompetence well above the norms for uh, any given presidency of either party. Jamel Bowie. And, and again, this this is less about whether or not I think Scott Pruitt should be leading the EPA. But if Trump's goal is to dismantle the EPA or at least pull it back from its from a more aggressive stance, then it's not clear to me that Pruitt is, in fact, the kind of person you want in that position for reasons of managerial competence. The same goes for Ben Carson at HUD, for Betsy DeVos at Education. These are appointments that may be ideologically favorable to Trump, but in terms of executing the Trump agenda, they can't even advocate for people to fill the positions, right? Like, if you want if you want the EPA to do less, you need actual people at the EPA to carry out your agenda, and the EPA is full of vacancies like every other federal agency. And so a, a principal 
who cannot advocate for his own agency to get the kind of funding and uh, expertise necessary to then dismantle that agency, uh, doesn't appear to me to be a terrific pick. Last word to Chris Kobach. Okay, I want to, there's so many things to answer, but I, I'll, I'll, I can only give you 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, so I would, <laughs> I would say a couple of things. Uh, as, as to the, the Bannon point, um, Bannon is not the only one making the decisions. He is a voice among many around the table. And, and Trump does get briefings on, it's just one meeting after another, after another in the White House, and the White House is still humming at 11 p.m. at night. They are constantly working, and it is, it is not what you, this, this cartoonish image that, that you're describing. 15 seconds. Jeff Sessions is the perfect attorney general for a transformation in the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice has a lot of ideologically driven attorneys in the Civil Rights Division especially, and so there, you need someone who is going to be very driven himself on what the policy objectives of, of the president are in the legal world, which, which prosecutions will take priority, and so he's actually the perfect person to enact Trump's agenda in that Justice Department. Okay, that's time on that motion, and that concludes our third debate on this night where our theme is unresolved, Trump's first 100 days. I'd like to ask you to go vote a third time now. Go to the keypad. The motion again. Trump has picked a terrific team. One for yes and two for no. And while you're doing that, we will move on to our fourth motion. The fourth motion is the press is out to get Trump. Our first speaker in this round will be Jamel Bowie. Jamel Bowie, on the motion, the press is out to get Trump. How do you declare? I declare yes, actually, on this one. Um, I think, as a, as a member of the press. Um, no, I, if, if you look at the reaction of mainstream media in the wake of Trump's election, it was very much not just, oh, we're going to cover this president as we would cover any president. It was explicitly adversarial. It was this this president is potentially a threat to the freedom of the press, and we're going to treat him accordingly. Um, now, I don't think that's a bad stance at all to take. That's, in fact, in fact the stance I took. But if we're, if we're evaluating the resolution here, is the press out to get Trump? I think, I think it very much is. Now, this is balanced against the fact that for some elements of the press, like the cable news uh, press, Trump is a huge moneymaker, right? People want to watch Trump on TV. There's a big incentive to constantly kind of hang on Trump's every words. But for, for, main, for mainstream newspapers, for many, many magazines, I think there, very is, there is an obvious antagonism towards the Trump administration. It's just antagonism I think is warranted, uh, but it's there, and it's be silly to deny it. Thank you, Jamel Bowie. Um, motion moves to your left. Um, Ian Bremmer, the press is out to get Trump. How do you declare? Uh, I say yes. And uh, look, I mean, Trump's, Trump hates pets. He hates dogs, right? I mean, Trump doesn't drink, and he treats his wives as objects. So, I mean, for all of these reasons, he's hard to relate to as a human being, right? And, and the people that I know in the press, right, I mean, I would say like 95% of the mainstream media, just as individuals, find Trump odious, and, 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 you know, they were absolutely willing to go with it when it was entertainment at the beginning. But now that it's actually like he's president, they want him to fail. And they're willing to go with that. Look, their jobs are not getting any easier. They're not making a lot of money. A lot of them getting fired, right? Media's kind of going to hell. They're absolutely against him. And I think that absolutely is hurting our mainstream media across the board. And it's undermining the legitimacy of the New York Times, the, Wall- the, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and the rest. I'm not with Jamal. I'm thinking it's good for the country. Thank you. Chris Kobach, 
the press is out to get Trump. How do you No declare? surprise here. Um, look, I'd say a number of things. One, it's empirically provable. I don't know how many of you saw it, but today the Media Research Center came out with a study, and they found that Trump has received more hostile treatment uh, in the broadcast media than any president in history since they've been recording this. Uh, uh, from January 20th to April 9th, 89% of the broadcast media coverage was negative. They looked at 1,500 on-air statements that were negative compared to 186 on-air statements that were positive. So, I mean, you, can, you could look at some objective things and say, yes, the, the press does seem to be out to get Trump. Another example of this is what's going on right now in the media this week, the whole uh, budget uh, uh, squabble or debate about the wall. Now, remember four years ago when uh, a Republican Congress was refusing or was a, a thinking they might refuse to give President uh, Obama the appropriations in the budget bill uh, for Obamacare, they said the Republicans are threatening a, a, a shutdown of the government. Now, where Democrats in the Senate are threatening not to give a budget bill because of appropriations for the wall, they're saying the president is threatening a budget shutdown. It's a clear double standard. The press is so obviously leaning one way. Rick Sorry, Richard. Lowry, how do you declare on the motion that Trump is out to get... Sorry, how do you declare on the motion the press is out to get Trump? I'm going to vote yes, but only to be on the same side as Jamel, finally, this evening. Uh, I know a lot of reporters. I don't know one reporter who supports Trump or becomes within 100 miles of supporting Trump. And a lot of them try to be objective, but there's still a haze of loathing around their coverage of Donald Trump. During the campaign, the New York Times, almost every day, literally, devoted the lead of the newspaper to something critical or hostile to Donald Trump. A lot of it justified. But if you just read the Times, you would have had no idea, no idea there was some significant chance of this man actually becoming president of the United States. You never would have known. And the New York Times, actually, the editors ran a mea culpa letter, in effect, after the election, saying, you know, we, we might have missed this one, guys. But immediately, like three days later, they snapped back to form. So is the rest of the media. That's why you have a lot of half-baked and tendentious stories that are undermining and discrediting and good reporting about Trump. So you don't have to agree with Trump's uh, attacks on the press to support this resolution. You just have to acknowledge what's obvious, which is that sometimes even paranoics have enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, finally, on the motion, the press is out to get Trump. Yes or no? <laughs> You're a no. I got to do that, right? I voted no for the listeners. Um, I vote no on this, um, not for any of the reasons that the gentleman to my right um, said, but because the press doesn't really have a meaning anymore. Rich isn't out to get the president. He's the press. Fox News isn't out to get the president. They're the press. Um, Breitbart isn't out to get the president. They're the press. Um, Are some outlets um, very antagonistic and very... um, I think, uh, forceful, aggressive in going after the president because he lies a lot? Yes. Um, But there are also people who are really sort of painful cheerleaders for this president. And that's the nature of the media that we have. We may not like it, but the media that you and you and you watch probably um, is somewhat hostile to Trump, but the media that Rich watches isn't. Um, And I don't think this is a good thing. I don't defend the silos, but I think there's plenty of support out there for him if you look in the right places. Okay, thank you. So we have four yeses and one no, uh, thus saving our debate. (laughs) I was going to have to go to the audience to find a no vote. Um, Jamel, I find it interesting that you and, um, and, and Ian 
have opposite takes on I think that you have opposite takes on whether this is a good thing. I may be wrong about that. That you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, Jamel, you're saying, yeah, the, the press is um, the press is on his trail because his trail needs to be gotten on. And yeah, they're they're doing it well. So I want you to talk about that a little bit in light of of Jennifer's assessment of the situation as well, because in a lot of ways I think you might actually overlap, although you're voting on opposite sides. So I guess this all depends on how you see uh, the Trump administration and, and President Trump. If you simply see him as an ordinary president, then the presses or the, the mainstream press's hostility towards him might be unwarranted. And then I, I would really make the distinction between mainstream press, because while Breitbart is the press, I'm not sure I would call it mainstream. Um, although Fox News certainly is mainstream, so you have this, you know, you have that. If you view Trump as a threat to uh, a threat to the free press, as a threat to pluralism, then there is a real case, right, that mainstream outlets, that the, the press as an institution, which doesn't just exist to defend its own prerogatives, but exi- exists as a part of our democracy that is committed to the values of our democracy, it is appropriate for that press to be uh, more critical and, and, and scrutinize more and even be a little antagonistic towards a figure and a, a sort of political style that is um, itself very hostile to uh, our democracy as we understand it. Ian Bremer. Uh, I, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I think there's a judgment call here because there are a few things about Trump that are different from other presidents, right? There's a level of incompetence, there's a level of corruption, and there's a level of authoritarianism. And all three things you find in other presidents, but you find more of them in Trump. Now, you're saying that if it's mostly an authoritarian problem, then the the press needs to just get out there and hit them as hard as possible. I think you're right, but that's not my judgment. My judgment is this presidency is mostly about incompetence to the extent (laughs) that they're different. And and by the way, that's something that will normalize over time. You fired Flynn, you bring in McMaster. You you get rid of Kate McFarland, you send her literally as far as possible from Washington, Singapore, right? And you bring in somebody else that's more capable. But I will say in terms of how you define the media and say, well, there's some media. Look, the Dutch are tall. Okay, there are some Dutch that are short. Okay, that does not make the statement that Dutch are tall less true, and that is the way I would view our view of the media being biased. Chris, go back. I'm wondering if you're having a hard time being the same yes, (laughs) being being yes with Ian Bremmer's yes. Um, We see things a little bit differently. Look. there's no question that the media view Trump as a threat, and they really, really don't like him. So maybe the... the should, should they? Well, I, this is where I'm going. So why don't they like him? Now, um, Jamal is su- suggesting that they are noble freedom fighters fighting against an authoritarian ruler, and they are the only uh, vanguard that can save us uh, from this tyrant. You know, I didn't say that. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, in so I don't think words, Jamal said that. In so many <laughs> words, uh, that, 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 that they're acting nobly, they're acting nobly in order to stop a, a tyrant. I mean, I, I think that's overblown, and maybe, and again, I am exaggerating it for effect. Uh, but the, the point is that I think a lot of them are attacking him in part because Trump declared war on them as much as they declared war on him. I don't know how many people in this room attended a, a Trump rally. I was at a couple of them during the campaign, and at every rally, he would have the audience at some point, for effect, turn to the media pool at the back of the uh, arena and boo, or, or he'd make some joke about them. And these reporters, for the first time in their lives, were actually the subject of the attention of all of this audience, and it was really negative attention. So I think a lot of them have something visceral of, like, this guy doesn't like us, so we don't like him. Did anybody on the panel experience that covering Trump? Well, I've been insulted by Trump and his folks on 
No, no, no. Hang on just a second, Jen. I do want to come to that. But Jamel Reyes has handled that in the sense that you were in the sort of scene that Chris Right, right. Yeah, right. It was at, at Trump rallies with press being so, jeered at angrily. So I think what I think what Chris is saying is that he got to you and and uh, you know he, he hit you emotionally and that your response is more emotional than intellectual. I think is that well, what you're I, I'm I suggesting it's it, not necessarily just pure emotion, but it's, it's a visceral kind of thing. Like he really doesn't like us. Well, I've got my pen now. You know. So I, I think there is a there is a distinction to be made between politicians merely disliking the press, which is a pretty normal thing. Politicians don't really like reporters, don't really like journalists all that much, and whipping up anger at journalists and casting them as somehow illegitimate actors in this game of democracy. The former we can all live with. The latter does sort of begin to constitute a threat to the idea of a free press. And I think journalists are reacting to the latter. Had Trump not, again, stirred up angry crowds of people to yell at journalists and cast them as illegitimate, I'm not sure there would be uh, the same kind of visceral anger. But okay. th- he did, and there is, and it's justified. It's time to hear from our one no vote, Jennifer Rubin. Um, well, to the Dutch, um, you know, <laughs> Fox News, um, as they keep telling us, is the most watched cable news. So they are a very big news source, and they clearly are not out to get him. Um, so there is, I don't think it's completely balance 50-50, but I don't think we should diminish. Um, after all, they helped elevate him and elect him and um, continue to support him. I would point out, however, that for all of his hostility to the mainstream media, what does he do when he wants to get a piece of information out? He calls Rich's ex-employee, Bob Costa, who's now a very good reporter at the Washington Post, and tells it to him because he knows more or less he's going to report it straight. Does the same with Maggie Haberman at the New York Times. He calls these people to impart the information. They then relate it. They accurately relate it. He didn't go into um, the the, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial rooms during the campaign. He came to the New York Times and he came to the Washington Post. Trump has used the media his entire career. He has played this game to the hilt. Whether he really hates them or not, um, this is his shtick. He has done it from the get-go. To the extent to which he's really offended or really upset, um, who who knows? Um, But this is a game that he plays. And he actually does know the respected media outlets because those are the people he calls when he wants to break news. Chris Kobach. So uh, on that point, Trump is not acting viscerally as some reporters may be. He's acting cerebrally. He is actually, he is manipulating the press better than any president has manipulated the press in the modern media era. He knows how to get under people's skin. And so he deliberately picks a fight if he knows that the fight will benefit him. He deliberately picked those fights at the campaign rallies. He wasn't doing it because it was fun. It might have been fun. But he was doing it because he knew that distrust in the media was low. He knew that on balance, the coverage of his policy or whatever the issue of the campaign was at that moment was going to be tilted against him. So he wanted to undermine trust in the press. And he has been successful in doing that. Uh, in its February annual confidence poll, Gallup found Americans' trust in the media to, quote, report news fairly accurately, uh, fully fairly and accurately, was at its lowest level in polling history. history. Only 32% saying yes. So he cultivated this battle because it would help him win the election and it will help him achieve his objectives politically. And so he's doing it for a reason and he's very good at getting under people's skin. I think this is a perfect example of it. Um, I would- hang on just one second, Chris, just a production note. Um, your mic got folded under on your left lapel. Okay. Uh, high up here, if you just bring that down. And Rich, Rich can adjust it for you because he can see it. 
This is how we help each other out. And then I'm going to come to you. Actually, I'm not sure I'm capable of doing that. <laughs> I'm a journal. I'm just a journalist. Not, we don't know how to do it. Technical anything. proficiency. Right. The problem is it popped off completely. Yeah. Actually, we may need a trained professional. <laughs> well, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. I'm sorry I brought it up. It won't. It won't. Pin. This means Chris will oh, have I got to it. Re- I got it. repeat all his arguments about <laughs> yeah, Trump having a terrific team. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's nice how competitors helped each other out <laughs> in a moment of need. Ah, oh, that's what happened. Yes, for the podcast listeners, we're performing surgery. On, okay, we're going to uh, we're Cole. going to move just, we're going to uh, move forward if, if if we can pretend that's not happening and pay attention to Jennifer so that we can keep going because the clock is running. Up. I want to agree in part with something that Chris said, um, which is it did help him during the campaign, but I would argue very strongly it's not helping him anymore. His level of trust and credibility is even lower than the media's now. He's, it's not working. It doesn't help him to get things through Congress. It doesn't help him to vilify the press. And I don't blame him for going back to the well. That's what he was so successful at. So he naturally tries it again. Um, but governance, of course, is very different than winning an election. Um, and I think he'll find that simply because he brings up Hillary Clinton once in a while isn't going to help him now the same way that if he brings up the press or yells at the press, it doesn't help him now. If, if He's judged on his results. So I think the act is going to wear thin after if a while. If this idea is, is, is valid, that, that Trump himself set out to damage the press and to make the press an enemy and to get the press... Is not the press's proper and an appropriate and reasonable response to that point, to for the press then to therefore get Trump in response? Is I think as maybe the thrust of Jamel's argument. Am I? I mean, my, my, the thrust of my argument is that I think the assessment of Trump as being sort of a kind of at, at best uncertain force, at worst quite dangerous force in American democracy, justifies a somewhat more antagonistic response than you might see uh, against a different politician, including the part that he's out to get the press. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I would, I would say one thing. Um, it's very difficult to cover a president who lies this much. Um, and, um, um, and I don't mean political lies. Obviously, there's just facts that aren't so. And he says it again and again, either because he doesn't read and he doesn't know things or because he convinces himself or because he can. He lies a lot. And I will acknowledge that the press is a little offended by this. They've never had presidents who lied to their faces like this, um, with the exception perhaps of Richard Nixon, but he didn't do it as much. Um, so I think um, in Wait, that there regard... Was, there was I did not have sex with that woman. Yes, but I don't think... The, <laughs> That's the, the other political side, though, so you shouldn't right, mention that. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Um, no, it's careful. But I, I do think that um, there, um, the press understandably feels that there is a fact-checking role to be had. And by the way, I don't think, talking to my colleagues at the Post, least, they're under any um, misbelief that they're going to influence people necessarily. That's just their job. That's what they do. Um, And so they are going to fact-check them, and they are going to investigate the Russians, and they are going to investigate conflicts of interest. There's a lot of stuff that's never happened before. No one one opposes fact-checking. But look, clearly, there's a love and hate relationship on both sides. The the press fears and loathes him 
but he's great for ratings, and everyone's subscriptions are going up. Trump hates the New York Times. He says it's failing, it's losers, but as Jen refers to, he calls Maggie Haberman whenever he wants to get something on the front page, and no one cares, no one has ever cared as much about what is written about him and said on TV than Donald Trump does. But I think the play for the press here, going to the numbers Chris cited about his credibility being low, when you're being attacked this vociferously and viciously by a very powerful person for being biased and unfair, you shouldn't react in kind. You actually should take a step back and be more fair-minded and more professional, and that they clearly haven't been able to do. And just a key part of Jen's argument is, is almost a scholastic argument that we don't know what the press is. We can't define it. You know, and National Review and the New York Times taken together have five million subscribers. Well, that might be true, but we are a very small slice of that five million, and people still look at the broadcast, the three big broadcast networks, and there are a couple few big newspapers that define the tone of the press coverage in this country, and they are clearly hostile to President Trump. So, I mean, I, I think that Brexit, Le Pen, Melanchon, Trump, Sanders, these are protest votes, and fundamentally they're protest against established political parties, against public intellectuals, against mainstream media, against elites, against science, against research. And, I mean, in that regard, Trump deciding that he is going to take on, in theatric and reality television uh, form, TV form, the, the mainstream media in the U.S. is an extremely smart thing for him to do and something he'll be able to continue to ride for quite some time, notwithstanding all the facts that he wants to make sure that he can continue to have influence over his favorite ones that he can dole out you know, to, his, to, uh, to, to, the, to the court gesture that's most appealing to him at, at any given time. But I also think we have been talking about only one part of the media. We haven't talked much about the media he likes the most, which is social media, because he can control it. He can get the information out directly. Now, social media is owned by Silicon Valley. And, social, and that social media, which they, were, they weren't paying attention, Mark Zuckerberg, no fake news, not a big deal until after elections. Oh, my God, we've got a fake news problem. You know, Eric Schmidt, Google, don't know what to do about the algorithms. Then suddenly, wait a second, we're going to deal with these artificial bots that are causing difficulty. I suspect that we are going to see a very big structural fight between Silicon Valley, social media, Bezos, and maybe a little Washington Post, too, against the White House. It's going to get larger going forward, not smaller. And that's one where the media needs to really watch out. Jennifer Rubin. Um, that sort of makes the argument that the media isn't out to get him because there's also social media, which is in, on his side. So thanks, Ian. Um, I wouldn't. But, I'll come back. With that. Uh, but, <laughs> I knew that. Um, but... I don't think um, he's going to be able to stop doing this. And it's not because it's working. It's because he can't. Um, this is a man with no self-control, no self-awareness. And he does this the way you breathe oxygen. So he will continue to do this whether it's productive or not. And I think it has ceased to be productive. Um, we haven't asked the mega question, has his 100 days been successful? But according to a very large percentage of Americans, it's not been. Um, and I don't think this is helping. I think it, um, go, it re-raises and mm. it cements this feeling that this guy is not all there. I mean, if you read that Associated Press interview um, that's been circulated, it's pretty scary stuff. Um, all he does is cement his opposition, which... As a minority president, he has to win over some of them um, and really rattle his supporters. So at some point, it's not going to work, um, and maybe he should try something else. 
Chris Kopak. I disagree completely with what Jen just said. He is going to keep doing it because it makes sense for him to do it, and it is beneficial for him to do it for three reasons. One is, uh, in legislative battles, the press is now a combatant on the battlefield. In the battle to repeal and replace Obamacare, the press is going to be taking an opposite position to discredit his opponent is good for him. Number two, it rallies his base. When he had that press conference where he... You know, frontally attacked the press in my neck of the woods out in Kansas. People were sending um, e- emails and texts saying, "This is amazing. This is awesome." The base likes it. And number three, 2020, he wants to get reelected. It worked really well for him. It's called free media. He crushed the Republican field because he got all the free media. They didn't, and that's another factor in the election battle that's coming up. He'll keep doing it. Melbourne, last word. So on this political question, there's evidence, right, from focus groups to polling that large numbers of Americans are really uneasy with the tweeting. They're uneasy with this behavior towards the media. And there's a real question here. Chris, you accurately said that his base loves it, but Trump did not become president because of his base. He became president because of marginal Trump voters who dislike Hillary Clinton more. So looking forward to Trump's political future, are those marginal Trump voters going to look at this behavior and say, you know what? I gave him a try. We, I thought he'd cut it out, and he didn't, and so I'm not going to support him. And that, I think, it's a political danger for Trump. And that concludes debate number four. Thank you very much. <laughs> Last time to vote, go to the keypads again. The motion, the press is out to get Trump. One for yes and two for no. One for yes and two for no. Okay, so while we're waiting to get those results, I just want to, first of all, uh, thank these debaters for coming in and... And, and, and standing and holding their ground, but doing it with such uh, civility and obvious respect for one another, and that's what we're here to try to bring about. So thank you for all, all for doing that. Um, Regulars for our debates know that very often um, we start the debate where I have a conversation with our chairman, Robert Rosencrantz, um, who uh, is responsible for bringing Intelligence Squared to the United States. Uh, He's actually in London now. Um, And what he was doing in London was he was attending a debate by our sister organization, Intelligence Squared, in the UK. And they they finished a debate about four hours ago where the motion was, Trump is making America great again. And I just thought I would share how that debate went. So um, the pre-debate vote, uh, 13% were for the motion that Trump was making America great again, and 67% were against. In the post-debate vote, the 13%... Um, how do, I'm just looking at the screen. Uh, the, the 13% went up to 20%, and the 67% against the motion went up to 76%. So um, the motion uh, failed. In, uh, in the United Kingdom. So I uh, just thought I would share that. Um, and uh, we also wanted to thank um, um, our co-founder, Alexandra Monroe, who we were hoping could join us tonight, but illness prevented that. But we thank both of them for keeping this organization moving forward. Uh, Intelligence Squared, I've said this many times before, we work and operate as a philanthropy, and the ticket prices uh, that are paid by those of you who brave the weather and coming out here, don't actually cover anywhere near the full cost of running one of these debates. Um, We send them out into the wild uh, as a gift for free. The podcast is free, and we're used in schools for free. Um, And so we rely on the public for support as well. So uh, we've gotten very, very uh, digital 
in the way we're asking for support, and that is that you can text to a number. If you text the word debate, very clever, to the number 797979, you'll be sent a link where you can make a contribution to us, and we would very, very much appreciate it if you could do that. While we're waiting for the results to come from your audience vote, I just wanted to take a minute to go very quickly around the table, starting with the last card in my pocket, Jennifer Rubin. I'm sorry, but this is your chance to be first. Um, since, in a sense, what we, we encourage this audience to do is to listen critically and keep an open mind, the question I want to have from, for all of you, is there, was there anything that any of your opponents said tonight that maybe, sh- maybe got you to think in a different way? Um, maybe you thought, I, I, I can kind of see what he's saying there. I'm going to have to think about that. So I'll start with you, and if so, and the answer doesn't have to be yes. Right. Um, I actually think... On the last issue, I was being a contrarian. Um, I think, um, um, particularly now, now, now you tell us. Yeah, <laughs> right. so long. what you wanted? You wanted to have like a debate, right? Um, so listen, there's an argument for it, um, but I think on balance, um, you probably have it right. And I think Jamel's point is an excellent one that. Um, whether uh, Trump defenders think so or not, um, the press does think that they're playing a role in the democracy. It is The press is mentioned in the Constitution. The press does have a responsibility. Uh, and they uh, are confronted with something that they've never dealt with before, and they're doing the best they can, and they're kind of making it up as they go along, because Trump is making it up as they go along. So I think Jamel's point was a good one. Okay, how about you, Jamel? And it doesn't have to be just on that last debate, but all across America first, the stock market, all that. Yeah, I, mean, I guess uh, on the stock market question, if you define that resolution in like a very narrow way, right, that like is Trump good for the stock market, I, I didn't give it that much thought whether or not he is, and he may well be, and we'll see how that works out. But um, uh, yeah, so there's that. Okay. Uh, which is like really thing we really know. <laughs> Ian Bremer? Uh, I'd go back to the first one um, on America First. Uh, and I mean, I, I hold to my position. But I think Jamel's arguments about the fact that America first fundamentally, irrespective of how Trump plays it on foreign policy, uh, is deeply problematic in terms of the way the American population sorts itself. Mm-hmm. And th- it is, is a, that, that is the argument for the other side, and it's the right argument. And it's, it's you know, so it depends on whether you're for, fundamentally a foreign policy guy, which I am, or you're fundamentally thinking about the United States at home, which Jamel is. And if I was, I'd absolutely be on his side of the argument. Chris Kobach. Um, on the America First debate, uh, some of Ian's arguments uh, got me thinking about it differently. I was thinking about it primarily in terms of transactional and, and domestic policy, the way you look at decisions. And uh, I think Ian's foreign policy uh, perspective uh, made me think about it differently. Thank you. And Rich? Uh, what most surprised me about this debate is just how quickly Ian can talk. <laughs> uh, you guys didn't see the, the clock, but when he got into the 15 or 10 second red zone, he, he sped up. It, it was, and he was already talking quickly, so he, he got into a one minute answer more than most people can get in three to five minutes. I would say the, we, we had kind of a disagreement among ourselves about what the question was on the stock market uh, debate, but I think the point Jamel and um, Jen were making that a lot of this agenda that, the, that Wall Street likes and is excited about at the moment might not happen. It's a little difficult to argue against because it very well could be true. All right. Thank you. I now have the results of the audience vote. Resolution by resolution. Remember, we have worked through four resolutions, four debates. You voted before you heard all of the arguments and you voted again after you heard the arguments and what we're looking for is to see which way this swing went on the first motion America First is a sound policy 
direction. The swing went strongly to yes by 17 percent. And that was the side argued by Ian, by Chris, and by Rich. In the second debate, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. The swing went to no by just a little bit, by 2%. That was argued by Jamel and by Jennifer. On the third debate, Trump has picked a terrific team. The swing went just a little bit towards no, argued by Jamel, Ian, Rich, and Jennifer. Oh, yeah. yeah. And on the fourth debate, the press is out to get Trump, argued by Jamel, Ian, Chris, and Rich. The swing went to yes. So those are our results. What it shows us is that because you swung, you all listened. And we appreciate that. That's our goal here. Thank you so much for taking part tonight. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.